Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talked to New Yorker staff writer and Pulitzer Prize winning author, Elizabeth Colbert, about her new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. The book is a fascinating and, at times, a darkly funny exploration of how humanity is trying to manage the negative effects we've had on the natural world. Using examples like the Asian carp, endangered desert pupfish, the Great Barrier Reef, and solar geoengineering, Elizabeth interviews leading experts around the world who are using new technologies to try and counteract the harms done by old technologies. It's a fascinating book, and we had a really fun conversation. Stay with us. Okay, Elizabeth Colbert from The New Yorker, which uh, happens to be my favorite magazine in the world, and you are one of my favorite authors in it. Uh, It's really a pleasure to have you today on Resources Radio. Well, thanks for having me. So Elizabeth, we're going to talk about your new book, which is called Under a White Sky. Uh, And it's a fascinating book. I'm really excited to ask you some questions about it. But first, we ask all of our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So what attracted you to reporting on environmental issues? Well, I even as a kid, you know, um, back a long time ago, uh, I was interested in slash concerned about environmental issues. So I wouldn't say there's you know, a single moment in my life. But um, what really launched me on this, my current sort of trajectory was when I went to the New Yorker 20 years ago now, I got this idea in my head. This was a time when there was still a lot of so-called debate about climate change. And I, I got this idea in my head that I was going to settle this debate once and for all. (laughs) Yeah, it was a wonderfully naive notion. But that's sort of what got me on my current, um, you know, writing, writing about climate change now for, you know, good 15, 16, 17 years. Yeah, great. Well, your your work on the topic has been so influential uh, for for many of our listeners, I'm sure, and for, you know, many more people uh, in the US and around the world. And the new book, uh, Under a White Sky, is is really fascinating. I, I imagine many of our listeners have read it already, but some probably have not. So for those few people in our audience who have not yet <laughs> purchased and read the book, um, can you give us just kind of a quick overview of what the book is all about and maybe highlight a couple of the cases that you study? Sure. So the book is is about ways that we we, humanity, have intervened in natural systems, what I will call for lack of a better phrase, natural systems, sometimes consciously, purposefully, sometimes unconsciously and unwittingly. And now we are realizing we don't really care for the results of that. And so we're looking for new new ways to intervene to counteract or ameliorate the effects of the of the first intervention. So as I put it in the book, you know, not not the control of nature, but the control of the control of nature, this sort of second order interventions. And some of the examples that I look at are, you know, in one case, it's an effort to try to save a fish whose habitat was wrecked by pumping from an aquifer. And that 
intervention. Second intervention has involved building the fish an entirely fake habitat to live in. Uh, I also talk about uh, coral reefs, which are being very, very badly damaged uh, by rising water temperatures, and now a group of scientists trying to figure out how we can manipulate corals, which are these tiny little animals that build coral reefs, so that they can withstand higher water temperatures. So that's sort of a, that's a, a practice that's been dubbed assisted evolution. Um, so those are some of the examples of, I, I'd go to some folks who are doing gene editing uh, in an attempt to undo a great deal of damage that was done by bringing a species of toxic toad to Australia. So that is the, the, the sort of second wave, I guess you'd say, interventions. In, right. Earth 2.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one one other term that you use towards the end of the book is um, people trying to solve problems created by people trying to solve problems, which I that that's my that was my favorite way of thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all of these things were were done, as I say, some consciously, some not entirely consciously, but they were done for for reasons that people thought were good at the time. They just haven't quite worked out that way. Yeah, right. Yeah, the toad example is is another favorite of mine because my wife and I, one of our first dates was actually watching a movie called Cane Toads, An Unnatural History. Yeah, that's <laughs> a wonderful cult classic movie. I really recommend it. it, it it's, it's all the way from the 80s now, but it's, it's a really great movie, yeah. Yeah. Well, so we're not going to focus on cane toads today, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, to my wife's dismay. But um, instead, uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit about a different case uh, in the book, and then we're going to talk about some kind of bigger picture things after that. So let's start with the case of the the four famous fishes. And um, this is the, the way that you start the book, talking about these fish. Can you tell us about the four famous fishes, how they got imported into the United States, and then ultimately how it led to the Army Corps of Engineers electrifying a portion of the Chicago River? Yeah, so this is a, a long and, and somewhat tangled tale, but to try to give the thumbnail version of it, the, the four famous domestic fishes are raised together in aquaculture in in China very, very successfully, you know, many, many, many billions of, of pounds every year. And they do well together because they eat different things. And so therefore they can sort of coexist well, and in fact, arguably sort of promote each other. Um, they were brought to the U.S. for different reasons, because precisely because they do have different feeding habits. So one species, which is known as grass carp, was brought to as it was going to supposedly going to feed on invasive weeds in in aquatic weeds, um, it's an herbivore. Another species was brought in because a lot of communities were under pressure. This was in the '60s and '70s to upgrade their sewage systems. A lot of nutrient loading from insufficiently treated sewage. The idea was the fish were going to sort of eat the algae blooms, and this was going to help with this with this nutrient loading problem. So they were brought in for, 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 you know, admirable reasons. And one of the interesting ironies is, is that this is the period right after Silent Spring. And they were, some of those species were brought in at, in an effort of biocontrol, which is what Rachel Carson recommends in Silent Spring. We shouldn't be dumping chemicals on the landscape. We should instead set one species 
to do the job of the chemicals. We should find a species. So if we don't like an insect, we should find something that eats the insect or parasitizes it. And this was an aquatic effort at that. We're not going to put herbicides in the water. We're going to, you know, bring in a fish. Now this, unfortunately, uh, there are many stories of biocontrol gone awry. This is one of them. Um, you know, the fish, you know, were probably perfectly good at doing what we wanted them to do, but they immediately escaped and really, in this case, took over the entire Mississippi water system. So there are parts of the Mississippi system, Mississippi tributaries, where Asian carp make up something like 90% of the biomass. They're just extremely efficient feeders, and they've just really crowded out uh, native species. So the second part of this story that we we need to get to the reason why the Army Corps of Engineers has in recent years electrified part of a waterway outside Chicago is that in the early part of the 20th century, Chicago, in an effort to get rid of its waste, which it was dumping into the Chicago River, uh, reversed the flow of the river. So the Chicago River used to run into Lake Michigan and now runs out of Lake Michigan. And in order to um, affect this change, <laughs> Chicago undertook a massive construction project that had the effect not just of reversing the flow of the Chicago River, but of connecting the Great Lakes water system and the Mississippi water system. So now you have Asian carp sort of right on the threshold. They've worked their way up the Illinois River, right basically at the entrance to the Great Lakes. And there's a hue and cry from the Great Lakes states. We don't want Asian carp in the Great Lakes. They will wreak the same kind of havoc they wrecked on the Mississippi water system and perhaps other kinds of havoc. Uh, and so the idea that the Army Corps of Engineers comes up with to try to keep them out of the Great Lakes is to zap them, basically, with, <laughs> with a, a lot of voltage. That's great. And, you know, the... I would just really encourage people to 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 read uh, you know this section because not only is it fascinating and the history is so engaging, it's also just totally madcap and hilarious. Like I mean, throughout the book, there are all these instances of dry and sometimes dark humor that come up. Um, like one example is you describe how you know the first time you get hit by a flying Asian carp feels like getting smacked with a wiffle ball bat. Um, so I'm just curious, like as a writer were you intentionally using humor as a way to kind of illustrate the absurdity of some of the situations that we've gotten ourselves into, or did it just kind of like flow naturally from the subject matter? Yeah, it was definitely, you know, the book is definitely written and I'm, I'm glad you found it that way uh, as, as a dark comedy. I mean, the sort of absurdity of many of the situations that we're in, the, the gravity is very, very real. Uh, couldn't be realer. Um, but the absurdity is is also, I think, important to acknowledge. And more even than being important to acknowledge, I think, you know, I think you can get at the truth of a lot of situations with dark humor that's very hard to get to at just hitting people over the head. They, the book covers a lot of territory. And I think if you had done that in a very, if I tried to do that in a very, you know, somber mood, it, it, it just wouldn't. You know, people, it, it would sort of just be a turnoff, how's that? So it's definitely an attempt to, to convey information, but in a way that is is fun and readable. I, and I hope the book is fun. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, Thank I can you. confirm that. <laughs> um, and it, you know, at times reminds me of 
obviously it's very different from the film Dr. Strangelove, but there's a little bit of similarity in that there are these really weighty issues that we're talking about, but it's also at the same time, very absurd and very surreal. Yeah. Well, the, that's my absolute favorite movie. I don't think I've seen any movie more times than Dr. Strangelove. So yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, so let's, uh, take a slightly different tack now. And I want to repeat to you a quote that you use a couple times in the book from Stuart Brand, who was the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog. And the quote is, uh, we are as gods and may as well get good at it. So you talk frequently in the book about the ways in which we are as gods, but we're not in fact very good at it. Um, and I'm wondering, after all the reporting you've done in this book, you have a sense of whether we've gotten any better at it over time, uh, whether we've learned anything, and whether you think we can get better in you know, dealing with our environmental and other problems, um, despite the fact that we continue to be imperfect, of course. Yeah. Well, that is sort of the central question of the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't have the answer to that. How's that? I mean, I, I, I quote Stuart Brand, who has actually gone on to say, not just that we may as well get good at it, but we have to get good at it. He sort of modified it in recent years because our impacts, you know, since the days of when the whole catalog first came out in 68 or 69, you know, our impacts have only intensified and, you know, are, are, are greater than, than ever and uh, keep, unfortunately, keep increasing. So he has changed that, as I say, do we have to get good at it, to which, you know, Ed, Ed Wilson had countered, has countered, we're, we're, we're not gods and we're, we, we should never imagine that we, we will be, uh, you know, to which Paul Kingsnorth, who's a British environmentalist and writer, who's, I think, has some very interesting work has responded, well, we are as gods and we're the gods of destruction, you know. Um, and I think that all of those are are valid points. And I think that, you know, the honest answer to that, I believe, would be on some level, yes, we've gotten better. You know, I don't think we would import Asian carp in the same kind of cavalier way that we did. How's that? Um, but precisely because each individual one of us now has a great deal more power, a great deal more computing power, a great deal more impact on the planet in various ways. Uh, you know, you can now do gene editing, you know, in your kitchen, basically. Uh, the odds that, you know, e that we're in control of things, that we're everything's going to roll out exactly as, you know, scientific research suggests it should, I think is extremely naive. How's that? Yeah, that's great. And and you, in the book, you do, in fact, <laughs> purchase a gene editing kit uh, and experiment with it in, in your kitchen um, from, I, th I think the company is called Loki, uh, which is a reference to a Norse god, right? Um, it's actually called the Odin, but yes. Oh, it's right. A, it's, a, it's a reference to a, a very powerful, sort of the most powerful God, I believe. I'm not an expert on Norse mythology, but but Odin is a very tricky god. Uh, he is constantly shape shifting and and very very powerful. You know. Yeah. One of the questions that we were talking about uh, internally, the the resources radio team, and I've been asking some friends, is whether we can think of gods who are very powerful but also kind of incompetent. Uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. 
in that they try to you know you know create worlds but maybe the trees are made of uh, garbage or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um I you know did did any analogies like that uh, come to you? Well, I mean, I'm I don't want to claim to be, you know, an expert on you know world religions, but you know, certainly many traditions that have many gods, you know, pantheistic traditions have you know, gods who are certainly tricksters, you have gods who are just destructive and we're constantly battling, you know, the gods of creation and the gods of destruction, That that's the world, you know. And I think that really uh, resonates and also takes on a new meaning in a time like ours. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm definitely not an expert on, on those traditions either, which is why I was asking around. And yeah. yeah, I don't know that there are, I mean, it would be funny. It would be actually quite funny um, and actually, I read an, an Italian novel a couple of years ago that was translated by a friend of mine called I Am God. And in that, God was sort of speaking and he was kind of just an ordinary, you know, schlub in a way. And, and that, that, that was obviously, you know, an attempt at humor. But, you know, it is an interesting idea. Yeah, we, when we think of God as omnipotent, it doesn't necessarily mean that he or she uh, always knows what they're doing. Yeah. Well, so a lot to stew on there. Um, <laughs> let's so let me change subjects again and um, kind of ask you a, a policy implications question, which I know isn't necessarily the the driving force of of the book, but uh, but I just wanted to ask you about it. So, in many cases, the book kind of poses questions that just don't have good answers, right? All of our options are bad or at least um, very uncertain. So as we move forward into the Anthropocene and what you describe as a no analog future, what lessons from this book do you think are relevant for policymakers who, who have to make decisions about environmental issues and, you know, health ethics issues and, you know, these other really complex topics where the uncertainties are enormous and where all the options entail risk and uncertainty? Well, I think that that, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> How's that? Yes. Um, yeah, that that is really the conundrum. Once again, you know, to, you know, not to beat the same drum, but that's a conundrum at the heart, you know, of the book. Yes, we, uh, we don't have any choice anymore. We're not going back. There's a there's a sort of romantic strain in the environmental movement, which I myself participate in this notion that, you know, if we left things alone, maybe we could all, you know, just, you know, lead uh, much simpler lives and and the world would, you know, be a much better place. And that's certainly true, but we're not going back. We're not getting the climate back. We're not getting that heat out of the oceans. We're not getting those creatures that we've driven to the brink of extinction. We're not getting those invasive species out of the landscape. So we've set in motion changes, you know, the sorcerer's apprentice. We're not we can't put that back, that genie back in the bottle, as it were. And then, so then if you say, well, the only option is to move forward in some way, and how can we weigh the imponderables of this course versus that course? These are going to be, you know, case by case decisions. And I think I can say, you know, quite confidently that some of them are going to be made wrong, but I don't know which ones. Yeah. And that makes me think of the uh, portion of the book that focuses on solar geoengineering, uh, which is a a topic we've covered in this show. We've had David Keith on the show, who you interview in the book, and Gernot Wagner, who who you also talk to in the book. And 
you know, the, the, the question that comes to mind is, you know, as we try to move forward in, in this future where we're not going back, do you think it's inevitable that our interventions will get more and more complex and therefore more and more harder to manage or predict? Or are there solutions that are, you know, potentially effective that could also simplify things? Or are there any examples from the book that um, that you can think of that either make the case for one or the other? Well, I, I do want to say, and this is somewhat moving beyond the scope of the book, yes, we could simplify things very radically. We would have to live very differently. And what we're yeah. committed to, what we continue to be committed to, and what very few conversations allow us to say is, well, we actually can't live this way. And, you know, I don't even want to say solve these problems because they're they're not soluble, but they might be amenable to amelioration. Um, you know, there's 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 bad climate change and, and disastrous climate change, you know, so those that's just one example. So there are, you know, yeah, we could all live very differently, much more modest lives, um, in theory, <laughs> you know, uh, that would be one form of radical simplification that I believe would have, environmentally speaking, you know, a positive impact. But that is not even really part of a conversation, uh, even among those who are very, very committed to climate action. It's not like, okay, well, everyone's just, you know, we're not going to fly, we're not going to drive, we're just not going to be able to do those things. It's all, well, we're going to be able to do these things, we're going to do it with a different energy source. Now, if you imagine, for example, simply transforming America's entire energy system, well, that is going to create a lot of change. Uh, some of that change, ultimately, you could even argue, you know, the change is is for the better. The net result will be for the better. But there's going to be a lot of changes along the way that people are not going to like and that they're going to fight like hell. The changes that you're describing are sort of changes, you know, decline of fossil energy jobs, you know, impacts on infrastructure. Are those the types of things you're thinking about? Yeah, exactly. And and, and also this new infrastructure, I mean, you know, that, I mean, I think it would be very interesting if you were like a Martian, it would be very interesting. On a human, it's more kind of disturbing. But, you know, all of this new infrastructure has... Uh, has to go somewhere. <laughs> People don't <laughs> particularly want it, a lot of it, you know, every fight over every every wind farm, uh, even over many solar farms. Um, this is, you know, you're, you're not getting, uh, there are a lot of land use issues, um, you know, right of ways. So, so everything is going to be, uh, you know, you can't wave your hands or you can wave your hands and say, we need to transform our infrastructure. And that's absolutely true. But along the way, when you get down to the nitty gritty, there are going to be endless sources of contention. Yeah, no doubt. And and we um, actually just a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode focused on that topic with Aaron Mayfield from Princeton, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. who recently, you know, participated in a study that kind of lays out different pathways to decarbonize the energy system. And the scale of infrastructure is just unbelievable, right? It's like taking up enormous amounts of space. It's doable, but yes. it's uh, but it's yes. a real challenge. Yes, exactly. And that, I think, is the next thing over the horizon, just over the horizon. Yeah. So let me ask you now a question that might be a little bit easier to answer <laughs> than most of the previous ones, which is, um, at the end of the book, you note that, you know, at least one of your reporting trips was cut short by the pandemic. I think it was a trip to Greenland. That yeah. You had planned. Um, but I'm wondering if there were cases 
either the Greenland case or others that didn't make it into the book that you just think are really interesting, but you weren't able to include for one reason or another, you know, other examples of humans trying to solve problems that we created ourselves? Yes, yes. I had a lot of projects in the in the conservation realm that I didn't pursue all the way to the point of, you know, traveling. For example, one was in Scotland, where an absence of forest management, you know, modern sort of forest management practices have left not enough rotting trees for a certain kind of insect and where now people are going around sort of creating this porridge out of sawdust and filling in, you know, tree stumps that have been uh, purposefully, you know, cut down, create the tree stump, put this sort of porridgey soup in the tree stump to try to create habitat for these insects to lay their eggs, things like that. There were a lot of projects that involved creating fake habitat. For example, um, another one, which I also almost <laughs> went to visit, uh, involves a very rare bird that migrates from Siberia to Southeast Asia every year and lays its eggs in Siberia. It's one of the most endangered birds in the world. Um, and in England, they've tried to create, once again, fake habitat for this bird. It was very difficult. It has to be cooled, you know, because England is a lot warmer than Siberia. The light regime is not right. Um, and But they have successfully managed to raise a couple of birds that way. But these are incredibly elaborate efforts to try to, you know, undo the damage of just habitat destruction. Mm. Those sound really fascinating. Um, makes me think of the um, the woolly mammoth project too, right? In Siberia, where they're trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. <laughs> yes, Pleistocene Park. That's a good one. That's a great example too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so many uh, interesting examples of this, and I think you know, from my perspective, the the book, which again is called Under a White Sky: The Nature of the Future, is just a really fantastic place to start thinking hard about these issues. Uh, I know many people in, uh, in our audience are already thinking hard about them, but uh, to have some some concrete examples and talking to, to leading experts in these different fields is a really great contribution. Um, so yeah, so I just want to <laughs> tell people to get the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now, Elizabeth, let's close it out with um, the final question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, to ask you to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. Um, it can be related to the environment or not, uh, but, you know, just something that you've read or watched or heard. It doesn't actually have to be a book um, that you really enjoyed and that you think our listeners might be interested in. Yes. So I am going to recommend um, a, a very new book um, that I actually read in galleys called Beloved Beasts, uh, which is a history of the conservation movement. And I thought it was very well done and really, you know, I consider myself someone who's, you know, fairly well versed in these uh, issues, but I learned a lot from it. So it's Beloved Beast. It's out, I believe, from Norton by Michelle Neuhus. That's spelled N-I-J-H-U-I-S, I believe. Great. Well, we'll have a link to it in the show notes um, so people can buy two books <laughs> exactly or <whatever>. perfect yes <laughs> buy books that's that is a uh, one way you can support environmental writing absolutely there you go and and ideally at your local bookstore too exactly exactly great well elizabeth colbert from the new yorker and the author of under a white sky this has been really fun thank you again for coming on the show uh i'm a big admirer of your work and we really appreciate you taking the time oh thanks for having me 
You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.